Welcome to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson, and I'm joined by MNN's Bill Werner, Tasha Radel, and Mike Grimm. We're going to delve into what's going on in the North Star State. If it matters in Minnesota, we've got it covered. This week, the latest on the measles outbreak in Minnesota, a cheese curd controversy is brewing ahead of this year's state fair, and former Gopher linebacker Mike Sherrills wins this year's Courage Award. But first, Republican leaders of the Minnesota legislature and Governor Dayton are in the throes of the final round of budget negotiations with the adjournment deadline looming one week from Monday. MNN's Bill Werner and I have been covering it, and Bill, it seems like despite lawmakers' best efforts, they're under the same last-minute pressure as happens every year. You are right, Scott. It is very difficult to break out of that pattern. Now, it is indisputable that the Minnesota House and Senate passed their individual budget bills much earlier than usual. They were finished before the Easter Passover break in mid-April. But when lawmakers got back to the Capitol after that week off, that's when monkey wrenches started popping up into the machinery. Governor Mark Dayton had written lawmakers in mid-March that he wanted the three key players, the House, the Senate, and himself, to agree on budget targets by April 28th. Targets are total spending numbers for major budget categories like E-12 education, human services, higher ed, and so on, plus a total amount for tax cuts, which of course affects spending. But later, the governor wrote what he termed a clarifying letter that he first wanted the House and Senate to agree between themselves on the details of their bills, and then he would get involved in negotiating the final budget deal. Dayton said he would not do a repeat of budget negotiations in 2015. It was nightmarish because we just said, you know, trying to reconcile three sets of differences versus two. Minnesotans will be better served if the governor's at the table negotiating immediately and not sitting out. My hope is that he will be engaged uh, immediately, and, and we're going to keep encouraging him to do that. Said House Speaker Kurt Dowd. I had to go through the budget discipline to get everything I wanted to do into a balanced budget, and that's uh, their responsibility before we start negotiating our differences. We don't need the governor sitting on the sideline during the legislative session. I hope that the governor is fully engaged through the whole thing. What followed was the legislative equivalent of ambassadors at a summit arguing over the size and shape of the conference table. The governor and Republican leaders disagreed not only on the major elements of the state budget, but also on the process by which they would try to resolve those differences. However, the House and Senate had little choice except to do what the governor wanted, and so they reached agreement between themselves, brought forward their set of budget bills, and sat down with the governor behind closed doors to negotiate the final deal. Keep in mind, at that point, the date was May 3rd. The cushion of time that Republicans and the governor built into the process had now evaporated, and they were where lawmakers over the years seem to always be at this point in the legislative session. Three weeks from the adjournment deadline and finally beginning the process of trying to agree on the state budget. Of course, that is not a straightforward process either. The governor and Republican leaders agreed to try to reach agreement first on a couple of the easier, less controversial bills. Why not take the low-hanging fruit first? I think that's what we're trying to say. The governor's in agreement that we should at least try to do that. Senate Republican Majority Leader Paul Gazelka. The governor said if they could get agreement on those simpler bills, then they would move on to more controversial ones. If we get bogged down in one of those as we got bogged down in 2015, then I will conclude that this is not a practical way of resolving our differences. But let's give it, we want to give it a try. They did give it a try. But after one meeting, again came back to a conclusion that seems impossible to escape. Before working out details of the state budget, the governor and legislative leaders first must agree on overall numbers for the major budget categories like education and human services, budget targets. We're going to have to thrash through 
you know, all the numbers. You know, all the numbers are interrelated with one another. The governor said the budget bills that House and Senate Republicans brought forward are riddled with hundreds of riders on controversial policy questions. We'll have to see what the legislature's willingness is to remove most of that so we can get down to the budget and get it resolved. Senate Majority Leader Gazelka responded policy provisions are always included in omnibus bills. We're going to look through what are the must-haves for us and what are the must-have for the governor and, and we'll figure it out. Well, things started to melt down last weekend. Republicans late Sunday buttoned up conference committee reports on their major budget bills, signaling they would pass them without the governor's blessing unless negotiations started moving forward. We are, are at a place where we have to get moving. We can't continue to do little steps and think that we're going to get done. The governor responded. They're setting up this blame game, and you know, I, I don't think more time is our problem. The two sides traded offers again, it ended up being at cross purposes. Moving towards the governor's positions, uh, that's five times what the, he had presented, and so we think this is a significant offer. We want to get the ball rolling. Negotiations remain stalemated, and Tuesday night the House started passing its budget bills, and the Senate, some say reluctantly, began doing the same. With the signal that he's not ready for global targets, uh, we move forward. We almost certainly send this legislative session into overtime, a special session and then, who knows, uh, on the brink of another state government shutdown. Our job as a legislature is to pass the bills, and then the governor's job is to decide whether or not he agrees with those bills. I think they'd be better to spend the three days in the room with the governor uh, trading offers back and forth. The governor said about Republicans' bills. The way they stand the last time I've seen them, I'd veto them all. So here we are, Scott, both sides accusing the other of dragging things out to the bitter end. Will they get finished in time, or will the legislature go into overtime? We will know in a little over one week. Thank you for that report, Bill. Minnesota Matters returns in a minute. You wanted to see me? Yes, please, have a seat. So here's the thing. When this company brought you on, we took a chance on you. You didn't have that four-year college degree we typically look for. Right. But we gave you a shot anyway. And since then, you've worked incredibly hard and given it your all. Thanks. You've been an important asset to the team. But I don't think you can be an intern here anymore. We want to hire you. You're, you're serious? Absolutely. Find your next great employee. Introduce yourself to the grads of life. Who are they? Talent worth knowing about. Young adults of unique determination and experience. An ideal fit for your company in an entry-level position, internship, or even mentorship. They might not have every qualification you typically look for, but they're exactly who your company needs. I won't let you down. I know. Don't miss out on a resource many innovative companies have already discovered. Go to gradsoflife.org to learn how to find, cultivate, and train this great pool of untapped talent. Brought to you by the Ad Council and gradsoflife.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. The measles outbreak in the state continues to grow, and MNN's Tasha Radel has the details. That's right, Scott. Over 50 cases of measles have been confirmed in the state, and majority of them involve children who have not been vaccinated. Many parents who refuse the MMR vaccine cite fears about a possible connection with autism, a position that continues to spread online and within the Somali-American community in Minneapolis, which has seen the vast majority of cases. Joining me now is Jason Wolf, an autism researcher at the University of Minnesota. Jason, how far back does this false connection between the MMR vaccine and autism go? 
Well, it was probably almost 20 years ago that there were suspicions raised that vaccines might be associated with autism. In part, the timing of many of the vaccines is coincident with when we might first see the signs of autism. There was a study led by Andrew Wakefield that came out that suggested there was a link. Um, that study has since been retracted. And there's evidence even that the evidence and data in that study were fabricated. Um, Andrew Wakefield, I believe, lost his medical license in the UK. And it did, though, start a wave of people interested in the notion that perhaps vaccines caused autism. And that's what I was going to ask you. Over a hundred studies, and all of them are coming back, that there's no link uh, between autism and the MMR vaccination, correct? Yeah, the, the evidence is it's clear and it's exhaustive. Vaccines do not cause autism. They're not even associated with a slight increase in risk for developing autism. Then, Jason, I have to ask the question, why are so many parents continuing to make this connection? Well, I think it goes back to that coincidence the timing of the emergence of autism and the vaccines. And these are parents who want answers. They want something tangible, an explanation that maybe they can hold on to. And that timing makes an easy target. And unfortunately, the truth of how autism develops is probably less satisfying and and less tangible. Autism is complicated, and the way in which it develops and its genetics vary from person to person. And so the truth and what we really know causes autism is is less simple than an explanation like vaccines. And you add to that perhaps um, the internet as a platform for spreading misinformation and pseudoscience, and it's made it very difficult for those of us involved in the science of autism to, to combat the misinformation that's out there. Because typically when do we uh, begin to see signs of autism or autism developing? Well, it could probably be diagnosed around 18 months, two years of age in in the majority of children. You might see some subtle signs shortly after a child's first birthday or around that time. Uh, Prior to that, it's less obvious uh, whether a child with autism might be different. Uh, And so that time, when, when it's first diagnosed, is around the time that we, in most children, have at least one or two MMR vaccines. And it's that that lining up of those two events that that have triggered the notion that vaccines might be involved. And do you feel that anti-vaccinators, I guess, are are getting into some of these um, uh, communities and, and I I guess, scaring people, to be quite frank? Well, I do. I I think it's really unfortunate that no amount of evidence seems to persuade the anti-vaccine groups. Um, They just change their narrative each time they're challenged or they explain away the findings uh, to some sort of giant conspiracy uh, involving pharmaceutical companies. And, and frankly, it's absurd. Um, there's, there's no conspiracy. The, the evidence is crystal clear. Uh, I'll add that some of the work that I'm involved in is, is part of a large study of autism called the Infant Brain Imaging Study. You know, we've recently shown that there are brain changes that happen in the first year of life that precede a diagnosis of autism. So the brain is changing, even if the behaviors aren't obvious, the brain is changing. 
And then I guess my last question for you today would be for a parent out there listening that's really struggling uh, whether or not they should vaccinate their child for MMR and they're worried about that link to autism, any final words for them or any final thoughts? Well, I, I can understand. I'm the parent of two small children myself, and I'm not even immune to misinformation that goes about. But measles is a very real and very deadly disease. Um, autism isn't, and autism is definitely not linked to these vaccines, but, but measles is very real, and we can't forget that. I'll also say that if, if you're concerned about autism or that your child might have it, there are evidence-based things that you should be doing, seeking out a diagnosis or seeking out early intervention. And it's, it's no good to anyone to spend time on, on an issue that has been very clearly settled. Thanks again to my guest, Jason Wolf, an autism researcher at the University of Minnesota. Back to you, Scott. Thank you, Tasha. Minnesota Matters will return after this. As a young teenage boy, I didn't even know what autism was. How do you even spell that? A few years later, I heard that a friend's cousin's son had been diagnosed with autism. I still wasn't sure what that really meant. When I went to college, my roommate's brother had autism. When I moved to the city for work, my best friend called me and told me his son had been diagnosed with autism. We were both in shock. I still remember the day I walked into the house and saw that look on my wife's face. I knew something was wrong. I'll never forget how I felt when she said, our son has autism. Autism is getting closer to home. Today, one in 110 children is diagnosed with autism. That's a 600% increase in the last 20 years. Learn the signs at AutismSpeaks.org. Early diagnosis can make a lifetime of difference. Brought to you by Autism Speaks and the Ad Council. It's Thursday night and you're grabbing drinks with some friends. Started off with a pitcher for the table, which quickly becomes two. There's pool. And there's the photo booth. All right, everybody squeeze in, say cheese. Followed naturally by an order of wings. And another. Can we get some extra ranch sauce? Then there's the ceremonial nightcap. So what are we doing this weekend? And lastly, it's back to the car, which, if you're buzzed... ...could be the most expensive night of your life. Getting pulled over for buzz driving could cost you around $10,000 in fines, legal fees, and increased insurance rates. Nothing kills a buzz like getting pulled over for buzz driving, because buzz driving is drunk driving. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. I'm Scott Peterson. The cheese curd state fair controversy is taking a bite out of the great Minnesota get-together concept as both sides make their cases. If you're unfamiliar with the story, in mid-April, news broke that the state fair would be replacing the original fried cheese curd stand after 42 years. That's after 80-year-old cheese curd stand founder Dick Mueller decided to retire. Dick's son Tom submitted an application to take over the spot, but the fair decided to move in a different direction. Since then, the public has weighed in, as have Tom Mueller and Fair General Manager Jerry Hammer, who explains... Well, there are, there are four cheese curd stands at the fair right now, and this is, this is one of the four, and they represented last year was about 
of the total cheese curd sales. So it's not like cheese curds are going away. There, there are still plenty of cheese curds at the fair. From what I've seen, if you can set me straight here, it sounds like the owner wanted to pass on the booth to his children. But from what I've read, the state fair is not allowing that. Is that, is that accurate or inaccurate, or what's the story there? Well, in any of these cases, anything that involves ownership of a of a food concession or even another concession, you know, there's there's a lot of layers to to how the whole process works. There are a number of cases where uh, we've had requests to transfer names on licenses to either business partners or family members, and in a lot of those cases, that request is honored. We never did get such a request from the uh, from the original cheese curd owner. Uh, we did, however, get an application from his from his son. Uh, it, it may sound like we're splitting hairs here, but that's uh, it, that's that's how the process works. Generally, there's a request for that uh, that name to be transferred, and we didn't get that that request in this particular case. We did meet with uh, with uh, with the owner in the fall of 2014, at which time he informed us that he was looking to retire soon. He didn't know exactly when, and of course, he'd have been welcome to stay as long as he'd wished. Uh, and uh, and then learned after this fair that, uh, that that this would be his last fair. And when we sent out our renewals requests in November, he said that he wouldn't be returning. We did get an application from his son uh, a little over a year ago, last March, for a cheese curd operation. But uh, it uh, it didn't follow the the normal sort of procedure, which still doesn't mean that honored you know the request certainly it is and when we reviewed the application but uh as i said in many cases uh we will uh, do a transfer and in uh and in some we don't and it just depends on a whole lot of factors like proximity to other to other vendors other concessions you know what, what's available out there what sort of demand there is for particular products but at the end of the day our our biggest concern is always how can we present the best fair for uh, people who go to the fair you know what, what's the best presentation we can possibly have in terms of our program and in terms of vendors and everything so that that's what drives all of our decision making and in, in this particular case we did not grant a license to his son but Tom Mueller, son of the original fried cheese curd stands owner, says the decision-making process at the fair is flawed. First of all, I would really like the fair to reconsider their decision to uh, essentially kick us out of the fair. Um, we've been a highly successful operator for the last 42 years, and um, since we've shared this news with so many people, I've just been blown away by the of the support from the public in general of um, how much they, they really like the product and um, and the tradition and um, you know and our being on the ground and so I, I'd really like to continue that legacy uh, but more importantly um, my main concern is the, the really the lack of transparency and accountability around how the fair operates we approached them a couple of years ago uh, as my dad was getting up there in age to talk about options for how a transfer could happen. Um, and they kind of gave us some guidelines of what that would look like, but it's, it's always just felt so kind of like this veiled secret of how things actually get done. And I, I feel like our situation was handled unfairly, uh, but more importantly, 
um, when I think about the fair and how they operate in general, they're a public agency, which basically means they belong to the public, and I think, therefore, they should be transparent and accountable to the public. Um, their kind of rules of engagement, how they, how they operate as a business, really are pretty secretive, and, and I'd like to see more clarity and accountability around that. Do you have any sense, Tom, of of why they would have uh, turned down your application or why they're deciding to move in a different direction? Have you had a clear explanation of that, or do you have a hunch as to why it's happening? You know, so that's that's exactly the mystery. Um, You know, number one, you know, when when anyone goes, when any Minnesotan steps through those gates into the great Minnesota get-together, it's so much about pattern. And, and tradition. I go here for my mini donuts. I go there for my pronto pups. I go here for my cheese curds. And so um, we've been fortunate enough that we've had patrons that have come back year after year, and um, and they love the product. Um, it's actually been a very successful business, um, and it has actually served the fair well from a financial point of view. So I kind of scratched my head. Why would you... Um, you know, why would you kill something uh, that's doing so well? Um, and then just secondly, again, that, that whole topic of tradition, it's, it's highly popular with the fair-going public. And why would, you, um, why would you kill something that the fair-goers seem to enjoy so much? So I'm befuddled why they would have made this choice. Um, from a financial standpoint, they're going to take a step back and it just raises questions, why, why would you do that? Fair General Manager Jerry Hammer, when asked if public outcry may change the fair's decision, responds... That, that's, that's very difficult to say. Again, we're, what we look at is the, is the much bigger picture, and, and everything is, is, very, is very layered. There's also you know, there's a number of different factors that enter into any kind of decision we make at all. So... Uh, regarding anything, whether it's an entertainment program or a commercial exhibitor or anything. So uh, those will continue to be what drive our decisions. In the meantime, Tom Mueller is asking the public to get involved. Well, number one, you know, contact the fair and um, tell them, hey, we, we want this, we want this, uh, we want our cheese curds back. Um, you know, our family's been going there for years. We love it. We'd like them to stay. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, but then second, kind of, again, on this broader topic, um, I think the public in general um, should be asking the fair for more uh, transparency around um, how they operate. Again, it, it's a public institution. It belongs to the public. It should be accountable to the public. And as of airtime for this story, the two sides had not yet gotten together to discuss the matter. Of course, we'll keep you posted if there are any developments. More Minnesota Matters after this. Sometimes a simple idea can be developed into something big that can change the world. This is Katy Perry. In fourth grade, my music teacher helped me make a vision board. It was a collage that represented all of my hopes and aspirations in music. But what if my teacher didn't have the supplies we needed to make our collages? What if I never got the chance to learn and express my dreams? Unfortunately, that's the reality our teachers face every day. They're forced to spend their own money, sometimes just to keep the classroom running. 
That's why I'm teaming up again with Staples for Students to donate $1 million to DonorsChoose.org, a charity that helps teachers get what they need to bring learning to life for students. DonorsChoose.org has helped fulfill more than 700,000 classroom projects benefiting more than 18 million students. It's an idea that's changing the world. It's easy to help. Donate in Staples stores or learn more at staplesforstudents.org. Welcome back to Minnesota Matters. It was an emotional night this past Sunday at the 10th Annual Minnesota Football Honors Ceremony at U.S. Bank Stadium. Rochester native Mike Sherrills, a former Golden Gopher linebacker and former Gopher linebacker coach, was given the Courage Award by the National Football Foundation Minnesota chapter. Sherrills had a freak allergic reaction to medication last August and was on life support for five days, nearly dying. He fought through surgery and returned to coaching when doctors told his family he might never coach again. He's sitting this year out and could return to coaching again sometime in the future. MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm spoke with Sheryls about the honor on Sunday night. Well, Mike, what's this award mean to you, winning it here from the National Football Foundation? It, it means a lot to me. You know, this, this great organization, I've seen it grow here over the last decade or so. And, you know, I know personally several of the past winners of this Courage Award, so it, it, it's not lost on me what, what the award means in the eyes of the people who give it. So um, being able to live up to guys like Connor Cosgrove and Casey O'Brien and Peter Westerhouse and Coach Kill, I mean, I mean I'm mean, i joining a, a great list, so I'm, I couldn't be more honored to be a part of that group. For those that don't know what you were uh, hit with last fall, take us through your journey from about August till now. So in August, I, I went in for what, what was seemingly a routine medical procedure and I had an allergic reaction to, to a medication that I was given and uh, ended up being sent in an ambulance for emergency surgery and I woke up about five days later and was told that I had about 23 feet of intestine removed and that I couldn't eat at that point and I may never work again. I might be in the hospital for six months and I was told a lot of, a lot of dire things and uh, you know, it's been it's been quite the journey to get back from that from that point. Uh, but I'm I'm happy to report I'm doing pretty well. I had another surgery in January to reconnect my digestive tract so I can eat again, and uh, things are going pretty well, all things considered. You went through a time where you couldn't eat at all. How'd you get nutrition? So I I, I still receive the bulk of my nutrition through through an IV port in my chest uh, every night. You know, for for 10 hours now I hook up I hook up to perinatal nutrition. Uh, parenteral nutrition and you know that's that's how I get the bulk of my nutrients but uh, I can eat a little bit now and you know during the time when my digestive tract was was unattached I, I had ostomy bags and I was you know I was hooked up to the I call them the TPN uh, I was hooked up to that for 12 hours at the time so the time has decreased and you know with the eating I can my body is learning to adapt to, to having much less intestine and uh, uh, yeah things are going pretty well there was a time too where doctors told you and your wife that you'd be in the hospital for months you'd probably never work you beat those odds take us through how quickly you got through this yeah so I was you know when I was still on on life support and just kind of coming out of it and my wife was told you know expect him to be in here three to six months he may have to learn how to walk again learn how to do all these things again and um, she kind of she had, she knew two days was was going on and I was missing it and that was going to be my first question when I woke up so she she asked the doctor well when can he go back to work and she was told he'd be lucky if he works again and uh, you know I, five days after my last surgery I was back up in the box I was <laughs> I was back coaching and I, I took it very slow at first you know I went back I think 
for an hour that first day and then it was then it was two hours and it was three hours and you know before long I was back up to working 70 hours a week and I ended up finishing the season I got to coach and be on the field so it uh, it, it was a hard road to get there but uh, I, I like to say that I made it and made the most of it you're uh, gonna sit the year out with the coaching staff change in Minnesota you want to get back into coaching though you want that next chance I, I go back and forth I go back and forth you know the, the last group of linebackers that I had was so special I it's it's almost a daily battle, but the one thing that I want to make sure is that is that I can do it health-wise. Because the one thing I won't do is I won't jeopardize my health. And, and Coach Kill has been a really really great influence in, in guiding me on that path. And if coaching Division One football is in the cards for me, I have to be 100% certain that it would be fair to my family, fair to myself, and fair to whatever guys I ended up coaching. What was uh, the family support? You have a brother who plays for the Vikings, your wife who was part, a former Gopher athlete herself, um, able to, to help you through this. The, the support has been tremendous. I mean, it's, w without it, I, I don't know where we'd be. You know, I, I have over 60 people here tonight. Uh, my medical team is here tonight. Extended family, family, my, my in-laws, um, former teammates of mine, teammates of Emily's, people who have contributed meals, church groups. I mean, it's just the outpouring of of well wishes and gifts and things like that from from people that I don't even know that my wife doesn't know people that we do know has just been it's been outstanding and it's it's uh, you know it, it warms your heart to know that there's that kind of community here and that's that's part of the reason that we all stayed home you know we, we stayed home we went to school here we tried to do our hometown and our communities proud and um, you know it, it's good to see that when, when we needed something that the community stepped up and helped us. That's Courage Award winner Mike Sherrills with MNN Sports Director Mike Grimm on Minnesota Matters. Mike Sherrills' younger brother Marcus plays for the Vikings and won that team's Special Teams Player of the Year award at the same awards ceremony. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you for listening and please tune in again next week for Minnesota Matters on this MNN station.